2: hello i'm james o'brien and this is the 28th episode of unfiltered featuring the comedian and writer shappy cor sandy although actually that description is a little inadequate when you look at the full scale and scope of her life and her career um you can buy tickets for her new show mistress and misfit at shappy.co.uk. and given that i've only just realized that this is the second um contestant on the last series of i'm a celebrity that we've had on unfiltered i'm going to try and get through the entire interview without mentioning it once I know you, you're president of the Humanist Society. Do you, does the Humanist
3: word, UK, yeah. Does the word
2: activist sit comfortably on your shoulders?
3: I don't think so. I no. think activists are much more active than I am.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sort inactivist. Arm, I'll have a bit activist. of that. I'll be an inactivist. <laughs> Up the revolution. But let someone else... I
3: don't think I deserve the... I don't I don't deserve activists. I think there are activists that would kind of look over, really, mate?
2: So what word would we use? Because you don't confine your um, advocacy to comedy and
3: no I don't do you know what it is James I get asked to support certain things and I right. do I, ju- I just get asked and okay. I like it and it's interesting for me and it makes me feel um oh, oh I can't live without variety in my life I get bored so quickly and one of the things I I cherish the most of my life is the opportunity to meet new people all the time and talk and move forward and it's fun it's fun it's fun
2: and one of one of the reasons Presumably that you get asked to, to, to represent interest is because your own backstory yeah. fits you for a v- variety of roles.
3: I do. I fit into quite a few boxes. I get that. You didn't mean it like that. I, no, 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 no. I, it's fine because I... Well,
2: actually, I really didn't mean it like that because I don't think you do. I mean, you might fit into several boxes, but by dint of fitting into a variety of boxes, yeah. you defy simple pigeonholing, actually.
3: That's that's a lovely way to see it. I'm going to start seeing it myself that way.
2: multiplicity of pigeonholing. You know
3: what it is? I think that given my background, I feel a sense of responsibility. Hmm. And sometimes I get envious of of comedians who, who are just silly and ridiculous. Yes. And brilliantly um, just. Well, this is already
2: common ground with some of the previous unfiltered guests who also could confine themselves to to an easier life, whether it's Actually, Lily Allen would be a good example. Who could just crack on with being a pop star, but but yeah. feels this sense that she kind of needs to yeah. speak up for people that no one else is speaking
3: up. There for. is a responsibility. You don't come to a country with the father I have, with the background that I have, and ignore um, requests for help. Um, well, let's
2: let's begin with that with that background. Then, born in Iran in yes, Tehran in 1973. Tehran. So. About four or five years before the Glorious Revolution. Yeah. um, Which changed everything for your
3: family. Absolutely. It did change everything. And my parents were supporters of the revolution because they hated the Shah, the dictator Shah. Um, They saw him as somebody who um, helped to demolish Britain's fledgling democracy, where where there was the first democratically elected uh, prime minister, Mossadegh, who nationalised Iranian oil. So... The Anglo-Iranian oil company became British Petroleum and that meant a lot to Iranians. And um, that was quashed in a coup d'etat by, I'm bashfully saying Britain, with (laughs) CIA money. So they supported the revolution. That's why it irks me and people like me when it's called the Islamic revolution. I've seen and it wasn't. It was the popular people's revolution. And the way that um, people, to my political persuasion, see it is it's the revolution that was hijacked.
2: Um, so, so a precursor to a lot of what went on in the Arab Spring, then, in a way, where where yeah, you have absolutely. a po- popular, as opposed to populist, movement coming up from the streets, but then it actually gets hijacked by, well, by you know Napoleon out of Animal Farm, in a way. Yeah,
3: because you're never as a nation as vulnerable as you are when when there's a revolution. Mm. You know, so so my my father and I and my family we were all in England in 1978. My dad was a very popular journalist, um, a columnist. Well, and... sure. So can
2: you think of a British equivalent, or would that be? Um, Tough, because actually they, they, they tend to put you on tram lines in this country. Whereas your dad could write poems on a Monday, maybe, newspaper columns on a Tuesday. Maybe
3: you mixed with John Hegley. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's that <sounds> awful. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. I was thinking more like Clive James, actually, or someone like that, perhaps. Would
3: well, he was—he's very, very funny and very. Um, the crucial thing about my dad's writing is it's very everyday. Mm. It was for, I mean, he had a satirical magazine called Asghar Agha, which translates as Joe Bloggs. He's very much for, the, and when you have a country like Iran, where there's such a huge uh, amount of the population who are um, literary, but not literate. Yes. Somebody who's... So the spoken word tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of someone who's, um, yes, someone whose poems they can memorise and they can relate okay. to is massively, massively popular. So when um, dictators come through, they sort of go for the... The artists, don't they?
2: Usually. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Because of that connection with ordinary people. It's it's empathy as well, isn't it? Because if you need someone to empathise with someone whose experience is different and you don't know anything about that experience, it's usually the artist that gives you an idea of what it would feel like to be the other person. Because I spent a long time when Trump was on the march trying to work out why they have such a problem with... And also why Paul Dacre has such a problem with lovies. And Mm. and And it's Mm -hmm. because art generally gives empathy. Empathy is the enemy of fascism.
3: You know, that's so interesting you said that, because when they started to say lovey this and and, Mm. um, denigrating people by saying lovey and slagging off Hamilton, it's, oh, just sing. Don't give us opinions. It really made me think of the Iranian... um, Back in your box. Yeah, yeah, back in your box. We don't want any of that compassion here. Thank you very much. It made me think of the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran.
2: When did you become conscious? Because you've already leapt to to England. I want to take you back to Tehran. When when did you become conscious that your father was poised to become an enemy of the new state, as it were, or or indeed had become? Because you were only four or five years old. You wouldn't Um, know that, would you? No,
3: that happened when we were in England, and we just heard. And everyone it was all, be careful, Huddy, and death threats on the phone. My mum would always pick up the phone, and she'd have to put it back down again. And also, my, my dad's situation was not unique you know we heard of other people who had been assassinated and stuff and I think it it really hit home it really changed our lives in um, 1984 when um, Scotland Yard came to our house and told us that there was a, a plot to assassinate my dad and we had to go away that day that minute we you remember just that go, oh 11 is yeah. an 11. age
2: you're conscious of everything yeah. oh gosh you. yeah and I suspect you probably yeah. weren't Shy of asking questions of your mum and dad about what
3: was going on. And stuff. No, it, it was it was almost like, oh right, it's happened, it's right. happened. It was this dark cloud over our heads, and it's happened because Christ. we heard that they were doing this. Now they were exporting terrorism, and it was. Um, I think yeah, I think that day changed all four of us. For you know, it, yeah, it was really.
2: Were you frightened?
3: Terrified.
2: Genuinely. Terrified. I mean, it's almost too scary to be processable, but not when it's happening to you.
3: You know what? I didn't process it till so many... I did a show about it in 2006, Mm. and when I look back on that show, I hadn't processed it even then. Um, It's only now, when I look back and just think all the behavioural, like all the behaviors that we have within our family were all so much of it attached to the fact that we lived in terror because that's the job of terrorists right mm-hmm. they terrify you like killing you is just a you know the tip of the iceberg um
2: and there was nothing your dad could have done to take himself off this list the the the, the... I know that's a slightly older yeah, question. Yeah, giving up work. He would giving he, up writing. So they were still disseminating his work back at home and yeah, still yeah. spreading his satire and his criticism of government and the threat yeah. is as as old as time itself, which is shut up or
3: Absolutely. Well, pay because the price. so many Iranians had left. I love the word diaspora.
2: Mm, it's a lovely word.
3: The Iranian diaspora. So my my father in.
2: Although it's usually voluntary,
3: absolutely, right. yeah. Well, to an extent, my dad's was voluntary. Okay. You know, he could have put his pen his pen down. Yes. I love these writer metaphors, um, and and <laughs> just sort of towed the line like many you know people did. You know, yeah. there are the brilliant um, Iranian um, cinema going on by directors who who navigate
1: okay the system. Yes.
3: You know, um, and but in exile, he published his own magazine. And that was a real labour of love, but it was so widely read by the Iranian diaspora. And I remember every Friday, because we had no money, and so all our friends would come and it was all run on donations. And we would all have a job. Someone would fold, someone would stick stamps, someone would stick the address labels. You had to be quite high up in the hierarchy to stick the address labels. (laughs) I was always like the dimwit that had to fold because I was the (laughs) lit list and I always got things wrong. And these, our, our house is always full of these massive grey postal sacks where my dad's newspaper was distributed all over the world. And that was why.
2: That was the crime mm-hmm. in the eyes of the of the um, Ayatollah.
3: Absolutely. By now. How, well,
2: quick, how quickly did it fall apart, the revolution? How quickly did it become clear that the...
3: Six months, my dad it? says.
2: Okay. Six, six months. Six months of hope. Diminishing. Yeah. yeah. Declining hope.
3: Absolutely. And I mean, oh, God, it's, it's such a brilliantly uh, complicated and dramatic story. Um, but just just to stay on my mm. dad's situation, I went to The Hague where I got transcripts of the trial where my dad's um, would-be assassins were brought up in by a witness. Because the reason my dad wasn't assassinated was there was an informant who then exiled himself to Dusseldorf but saved my dad's life. And... This
2: would be the eighty-four assassination. Yes. Okay.
3: Because some years later, there was another, mass, a bigger assassination in a cafe called Mykonos in Germany, where six Kurdish dissidents were assassinated. So it's in their trial that this same witness said, "Yes, I was privy to this attack, as was I to the one of Hadi Sandy in nineteen um, eighty-four, and my dad's death order was signed by the Ayatollah himself, and the code name to." um trigger the attack on my dad was um the code was let the celebrations begin
2: wow mm. and you discovered this as a as a young woman
3: yeah yeah and and I look back on it and I think you know my dad kept so much away from us about yes. all this and I look back on it and I sort of forgive my dad for a lot of his craziness
2: okay and and that's odd because I was going to ask a question that might have led to forgiveness of a different kind did you ever resent him for for putting this target on your family? Yeah. Oh, when really? I was a kid, yeah. Go on.
3: I didn't understand, I loved him very much and I was very proud of him and I have to say I enjoyed my dad's fame. Yes. I enjoyed the fact that I had this famous you, dad. You had
2: his little girl.
3: I'm had his little girl. A party wasn't a party unless my dad was there. People would check my dad's availability before they planned the social event. I loved all of that. However, I kind of wish he worked. I had this little fantasy that my dad was the guy outside Ealing Broadway Station <laughs> that sold the, the Evening Standard. Yes. I thought, why can't you be that guy?
2: Because there's not going to be any <laughs>
3: there's no danger midnight there. flits. Just Standard, f- <laughs> Evening Standard.
2: And was it, I, I don't want to kind of cliche anything, but what, what, was there a sense of sometimes for some periods, every time there was a knock on the door, you'd be worried
3: oh absolutely oh absolutely i still fear that i still i'm not yeah i'm still not right with all of that i get very paranoid very quickly um when i was <laughs> i moved into my new house 5 years ago so i was pregnant with my daughter and i had a 5 year old son and it was just the three of us and I moved into a new house, and in the first week, I think I called the police twice because I was absolutely convinced there was someone in the house with us. Mm. It's ridiculous. There's no way there would have been. And I had to sort of sit down and go. Obviously, I'm pregnant, so yeah. I'm hypersensitive and protective, and also because you know that was always like a waking fear. Um,
2: Even now, so yeah, it, it's
3: it's real. In 2006, I um, had a. Write up of my show about all this in the Telegraph, and I had never um, been written about in papers before. So all of that was surreal, mm. and the, the the guy tried to make my show something it wasn't. And he said something along the lines of, who knows if the same people that, want, that wanted to get her dad will see this show and history will repeat itself. And he wrote that, and it destroyed me. <laughs> destroyed me. I thought, why would you put... And then he said, um, she swaggers round the stage holding her pint without mentioning it was a pint of water. And so I was really terrified. And I remember one night all the Perrier Awards uh, people were in because my show was rumoured to be long-listed. And that day the day that they all came in for like the third or fourth time to make their final decision, in the front row, I had two women who were wearing hijabs and two men who were um, bearded. Right. And I, and it was a really tiny room, oh. like 50-seater room, crammed. And they sat in the front, and I convinced myself that they were from the Iranian embassy, and they'd come to check out my show. So I edited it as I went... And at the end, of
0: course they weren't.
3: (laughs) They they, they didn't smile very much because they couldn't speak very much English. (laughs) They weren't from the Iranian embassy. And um, so I I do think that the Islamic Republic of Iran in a massive way ruined my chances of a really cool award
1: that year.
2: I I think we'll put that near the top of their crimes against humanity. (laughs) Absolutely. absolutely. It's all about me. (laughs) We've got to get our priorities sorted. So uh, Britain becomes... Your second home because yeah. it's clear talking to you that that Iran has a special status in Absolutely, both yeah. of your both generations of your family's world view um you're, you're a little girl you're you're a, a little Iranian girl presumably in, in 1978 1979 you were Pakistani in the eyes of a lot of people Yeah,
3: I really was <laughs> Pakistani is polite I just stop at Pakistan yes. yeah yeah I was it was and it that was... must have
2: been quite a culture shock to have come from a place where you were part of the homogenous population to yes. come to a place where not only are you in a minority, but you're not in the minority that you're being abused for being. I know and...
3: all of that was very very strange. And then I went to a big ass comprehensive school that was um, that I didn't fit in because even like with the Asian kids, I didn't fit into the, a religion bracket.
2: No, of course.
3: That was quite important at my school. Well, was, didn't, there, was there be...
2: never religion in in, in the never. family home? It was always
3: never. No, no um there's no one really religious i was actually thinking i don't know anyone in my family who is religious um my so you... granny used to pray yes but she used to do it as a like mindfulness you yes. know she'd done it since she was little and mm. it was like her way of meditating um bit like me with my adult coloring in book
2: <laughs> it's a bit like me with church actually i i, I go to church because i was raised that way but I'd, I'd, I'd see it more as meditation, a bit like yoga without having to stretch and just sit I there. I
3: shouldn't say this as president of the Humanist UK, Humanist UK, but I love a bit of
2: church. It's nice. It's, I mean, even um, Dawkins talks about how he likes the pageantry and the ceremony and the Christmas carols. But,
3: yeah, yeah. But
2: it's just, I, but he wasn't. I I'm mean,
3: really whispering I mean, that.
2: Oh, no, then, it's it's, it's, that's, no, it's fine. If I
3: did have religion, I think it anyone. probably would be Christianity because of school and all of that. Yeah, you of know, course. And we, and, yeah, it, and you it can it.
2: keep it relatively moderate in this this period of history. Christianity yeah. has a it lends itself to sort of shallow end yeah. type <laughs> contemplations rather than deep end ones. So you arrive at school, you can't. You, you're not a Muslim. You're not. A, you're not from here. You're not from there. Presumably, mm-hmm. there weren't any other Iranian children. There were, there were, one, were there one or
3: two. Yeah, there was one or two the Armenians. There was Armenians going on, and we had a whole Iranian community outside of school. Right, but um, hugely because I'm bilingual. Um, That makes a difference because at home everything was Persian, everything was Farsi, um, and at school it wasn't. So it was really living in two different worlds. Mm. And I was taught when my son was very little, my my ex-husband and I are friends now, but when he was very little, we were not. And he needed a bit of adjusting when he came back to me after his dad's. Okay. And And I noticed that. And I said one day to him, I think I know how you feel a bit because you go into this whole other world that mummy's not a part of. And then you get shot back into this world where there isn't a trace of daddy. And I think I get that because that was like me with England and Iranian. It's, it's almost like you're two different people in each one. And he was only about six. And he went, yeah, oh, I feel like I'm two people. And now me and his dad are, you know, in and out of each other's houses oh, all the time. Good. and It's all fine. But but I was quite pleased with my parenting. No, yeah, well, you spotted
2: it, but only yeah. because you'd endured that. It's a duality that you
3: describe, isn't
2: it? It's yeah.
3: And it's not It's not a bad thing. No, it's of course. It's, it's, a, it's a great thing. But you are two different people. And so when I started like, cause you know, in an Iranian like community, I'm like, you know. <laughs> I'm yeah. a big deal, you
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> and
3: then send on the circuit, and everyone's yeah. like, So, what do you do? Give me five minutes. I'm like, Ah. Um, so, it's like growing up as sort of, you know, little Miss Iranian princess, but no one caring about that in my normal world.
2: Uh, but did you have a tough
3: time at school, or were you just. I had uh, a horrible time oh, at oh. secondary school. I had a brilliant time at primary school. I went to a lovely, twee little primary school where I decided to talk posh yes. because that way you got away with murder. That's um, so le-
2: Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg is still proving on a daily I know, basis. it's unbelievable.
3: <laughs> and, and because I was, OK, this isn't a nice thing to admit, but I used to feel quite embarrassed at how po- how foreign my parents oh, were. Yeah. They did things like they'd kiss my friends hello and goodbye. It's like, what are you doing? Because mm. Iranians kiss all the time, willy-nilly. I said, no, don't kiss her. Leave yeah. her or leave Rebecca but, alone. But
2: all kids are, are embarrassed by their parents. Now you just I realise think it's that. unique, don't you? It's like Tolstoy. It's yeah. that idea that they in their own special way. My mum has a Yorkshire accent, sent me to a posh school, and I, I cringe inside. It's like pouring vinegar on my soul when I remember being embarrassed about the fact that she had a broad Yorkshire accent and, and some of the lads I was at school with would think that that was a source of shame. I wish I could go back and punch
3: them. Punch them. them.
2: Genuinely, and also give my mum a cuddle.
3: Because you feel bad, don't you? Really you? do. It's so, I feel f- I've formally apologised to my parents for ever finding them uh, their foreigners embarrassing. So, you know, my mum would do things like just Iranians now. Obviously, it's different because we've been here a long time. But when they first came, they didn't really understand the five items or fewer. No. Lane of the supermarket, <laughs> you know, just charge in there. And <laughs> they. people, <get these. laughs> yeah. nice people in Marks and Spencer would go, bloody foreigners. Yeah, of course they would. And so I would speak like this. <laughs> I'm sorry about my father. He didn't see. <laughs> there wasn't a no donkey sign in the swimming pool. Um, so I would just speak as posh and as Enid Blyton as possible to sort of counteract their when, foreignness.
2: When, when did you start making people laugh?
3: When I was seven, I did Margaret Thatcher impressions.
2: Straight in then.
3: Yeah, straight in. 79. So It was a mad year, 79. Thatcher came and Um. the Ayatollah, Mm. ages I thought they were married. (laughs) And then, so I learned quite quickly that uh, impersonating this woman and, you know, spitting image came along not long after that. And I just got like absolutely mesmerized by comedy and impersonations. That was my thing, was impersonations. And my parents had endless parties. They had endless parties, and they'd always grab me when the, everyone was drunk enough. Shappy, come and be Thatcher. Calf, Ka- Shappy, be Thatcher. So I that would be Thatcher. And I got a real taste for what it was like, how good it felt, and also um, I got a taste for how awful it felt when it didn't work. Like I died on my ass, you know, age oh, come eight. Come on, they're
2: just going to pretend that you're funny when you're eight. You can see in their eyes, James. You can, you tell. can the see smile the smile is there, but the eyes are dead. And then <laughs> you finish, and they
3: go, "Isn't she charming?" Isn't then I'd go away, and my dad would come and go, "Yeah, yeah, that that wasn't a great one. That give wasn't a an great eight. One. Give an eight. Notes. Oh God, yeah, Love yeah. It. Oh, my because he saw you
2: was a chip off the old block already.
3: You know, yeah, he did. And my dad set the bar quite high. I remember I got a terrible review in Edinburgh once. I say once like it's never happened. It's happened (laughs) loads. I don't read them anymore. They don't get me. (laughs) 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 But I got this bad review. And I said to my dad, how do you feel when someone gives you a bad review? And he said... "Um, Well, there's always going to be people whose opinions differ to yours. And I was like, I'm not talking about your opinions. Mm. I'm talking about when people say your work is bad. And he looked at me baffled. I was like, no one's ever done that, have they? No one's ever been able to hate you. (laughs) Thanks,
2: Dad. Thanks for your support. I
3: think that's easier for me than for my brother because he's a boy and he's the firstborn. Right. And I think um, firstborns, there's a lot more pressure on them to sort of be chips off the old block. It's a long
2: shadow. Mm. Did your brother go down a similar route to you?
3: Um no, he was always the funny one. Really? And ha- having been a child who mm. sort of hung off my dad's coattails, I was fully um expecting to hang off my brother's coattails. But um no, it didn't happen. Um he hasn't got the ego to What pres- do you mean
2: by ego? Do you mean the look at me gene? Mm. Okay. He
3: doesn't have the look at me gene that Which I think.
2: Which you both envy and also are grateful that you do, right?
3: I think so. I have it. I've had it. Sure. It's a disease. Well, clearly, yes. Margaret Thatcher impressions at
2: the age of eight is a bit of a clue, isn't it? But it, but it yeah. is odd. You either have it or you don't. People don't get this. It's a yeah. It's a slightly weird way to be made.
3: Yes, my daughter has it.
2: Right, but my you, son doesn't. There you go. You see, you go, yeah. see. I think I'm the same. I think one of mine has got it. I'm not sure yet, and the older one hasn't and yet they both like performing they just don't have the look at me jean it's weird
3: same as my children my son loves performing absolutely can take or leave strangers thinking he's great
2: yeah yeah, yeah. that's maybe that's what it is a degree of that desperation
3: yeah i don't know what it is i try I'm, i i'm just i'm sure my daughter came out the egg like that i'm sure yeah. i didn't do anything bad i'm sure i didn't yeah i'm sure it wasn't my fault I think it's a compulsion. I think compulsion and addiction Does and it I know a happen? lot of people Oh my goodness. I, I thought you'd
2: say yes, but I just wanted to Whoa. double check.
3: Jim, it's... my dad, he told me that okay, so he had a mad childhood. Um in rural Iran. Right. You know, poor, uneducated, um uh, family and his dad. Uh, who who was educated, rumoured to be have been a poet. Oh, come on, what Iranian isn't a poet? Jeez. <laughs>
2: Slightly Irish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know,
3: first time I went to Ireland yeah. I was an adult and I sat there in Cork. Yeah. In a bar. And it was like being at one of my parents' parties. I I was like, they are Iranian. I get them. Just a bit drunker. I don't know. Iranians (laughs) can pack it away, but we're very controlled. (laughs) I don't know why more isn't made of the difference between the Irish. I don't know how Irish people don't walk around all the time going, it's bonkers here. (laughs) Um, So his dad died when he was only seven. So then he was sent to a um, children's home in the city. To, to be aged, so that's it. From the age of seven, he wasn't raised around adults, and his birth certificate didn't belong to him; it belonged to a. This is a time in rural Iran, um, birth and mortality rates were high. So, my two grannies—one of them had four surviving children out of nine. Mm. The city granny had nine surviving children out of nine. So, I had like, yeah. sort of, t- you know, like the town and country mouse. Yeah, of course, yeah. I've had it in yeah. like grandma form. So, um, so he had a big brother who died. Uh, called um Hardy oh. and so when my dad was born, they just gave him the big brother's birth certificate and so my brother my dad said at a very young age. He was tiny. He goes, I don't even remember how old I was because I was so small. He said, I'm going to be famous. Everyone knows my name because they keep getting my name wrong.
2: How quickly, after a fairly idyllic primary school, how quickly did you realise secondary school was going to be profoundly different?
3: Oh, day two. Seriously? Day one was amazing. I was like, just like Grange Hill. Oh, my God, it's like Grange Hill. (laughs) Day two, I sat there and... At primary school, because I'd been there from the age of five, everyone accepted me for who I was, Chaparak. Yeah. Yeah. I was Chaparak back then. <laughs> and I had, we had no money. So, sure. like, you know, I, my clothes weren't ever the latest fashion, but I was me and I had big, massive, frizzy hair that my mum cut herself. And I was fat and I had one eyebrow. <laughs> but I was great. <laughs> And then I went to secondary school and everything changed. Everyone seemed a lot older than me. My first day, I took French Elastic with me because I thought people,
1: we I could play French Elastic.
3: Oh, no, 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 no. Every childhood thing had to be put away. And a girl turned around to me in the assembly and said, Chaparack, you make me sick. And no one had ever been mean to me like that before. And I just wasn't equipped to deal with it. I was so sad. But at my school, there was a lot of bullying. Do you know that guy, um, Steve McQueen? Yeah, uh, twelve years slave. Yeah, the film. He character. was yeah. He was two years above me at school really? at my school, and I heard him on Desert Island Discs, and I read an article in the Guardian with him, and I cried because he described it perfectly.
1: Is that right?
3: Yeah, having spent ha- going to school like that, and then you're spending your adult life undoing all of the damage of, of being told you're thick or you're not going to get anywhere, and just finding some sort of steel inside you. To um,
2: to cope to not, not
3: accept that yeah
2: it's not inside you to start with is it when when a girl turns to you and tells you that you make her sick that's mm. on the outside you need to start did you start building layers of skin or did you just sort of suffer? no
3: I shrunk I absolutely shrunk and and this is this has a lot to do with your own personality yeah. I wish I'd been able to go home and tell my parents what she'd said. And so I think, well, in a way that's kind of good because I, I kind of do know, I, I quiz my children if ever I think they're feeling sad, even without them saying anyone's being mean. I tell them that sometimes people are mean because they see something in you that they want to knock down. Yeah. They see a confidence in you. And I've noticed that as an adult. When I first started stand up, sometimes people were really rude at parties. Really? Like, oh, the comedian's here. Oh, God, you don't say that on stage, do you? Or whatever, socially, not anymore. Not, not like, you know, since I've become a badass. I've <laughs> done, done all right. But um, but then I remember my brother said to me um, once he goes chap you come across as really confident and people think you can take it. I was like oh wow okay. I never saw it that way. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. Fifty
2: fifty isn't it? Because yeah. you didn't come across on your first your second date. I Second. think
3: I was quite loud and oh, okay. cheery, you were still and... sort
2: of giving it
3: yeah, but a vibe
2: of confidence. I
3: was, but I came to school talking like this, yeah,
2: so great. like
3: we're going to have so much fun. <laughs> is there going to be a school play? <laughs> and there's kids going, you what? Yeah. What even is that? And then there was uh, kids who are more streetwise than me from my school who dropped their middle-class accents the moment they walked through the gate.
1: Ready to pop the question?
2: So they knew.
3: I didn't have the mouse to do that.
2: So fitting in is the thing, isn't it? And you, yeah. you, you just didn't.
3: No. And I wasn't in the smart band. Like if you were like my best mate who was like, you know, a posh, posh like me, but she was super smart and did Latin. So she was creamed off. 30 kids were creamed off in the acceleration, accelerated learning class. And I was in a tricky situation because I was, like, good at English and French, but really poor at maths and sciences. And the school timetable didn't cater for me. They couldn't put me in the top bra- right. top um, sets for humanities and the bottom sets for mm. sciences. And I shouldn't have been in the bottom set no. for sciences anyway because I'm now really interested in it. You know, it's, it's just the way that it is in these schools that are so massive where you can't um, – I, d- I don't want to – oh, it's a tricky thing because –
2: well, there's no room for nuance, is there? You, you, no. get, put, you get put on your rails and you stay no. on them for the for the duration. I'm surprised how how cross you still are about it.
3: I'm so upset about no. it still. Chapparac, the blob, my teacher called me. Really? Yeah, isn't that terrible? That's a
2: reference to your weight. Yeah. Yeah. That and is and my
3: lethargy. It's like I'm not lethargic. I'm terrified. There right. are some serious bullies in this class. Yeah. I got into a fight with somebody, and it was just um, horrific. I just got attacked in the corridor.
2: For what, in your own mind, did you think you were... Okay, so
3: what had happened was... Now, you've got to bear in mind, I've grown up scrapping with my older brother. I'm quite physically... I'm tough, right? I can can, can have you. I
2: don't doubt it for a minute. But I'm
3: not... um, That's not the way I operate. (laughs) So um, there was a girl behind me, and she was tugging at the hair of this really sweet girl. And this sweet girl kept saying, get off, get off, get off. And I turned around and said, leave her alone. Let's call her Susan. Leave her alone. And then she attacked me. Right. She went, what's it got to do with it? And that's what they do. They, yeah, they, they're just looking for it. Anyway. So yeah. then next thing I know, hair's being pulled, heads are being slammed against lockers. And the teacher yanks us both up. And of course, I'm told we did not expect this of you, Chaparak. And all the tough kids were really surprised because I didn't cower. Mm. I just was like fists up. And so they all came up to me and said, right, fight after school mm. and we're on your side, we're on your side. So they arranged this fight and that was a real moment for me. I thought I, I could go to this fight after school because if you were a fighty kid, you were mm. in the in crowd, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. I could go to this fight after school, I could kick the shit out of this girl and my social life at school is going to be amazing, I'll be in that group. Or I can give the te- get the 10p, that my dad always gave me before school in case of emergencies. I can go to the school phone box and tell my dad to come pick me up um, at the opposite mm. gate. So that's what I did. I crept out with my best friend and we got into my dad's car and went home, and the next day I was dead to everybody. You chicken, you chicken, you chicken, you didn't come, you didn't come to fight, you Why chicken.
0: Didn't
1: you?
3: Why didn't I? Because it's gonna sound really fucking snobby oh. I thought you fucking losers are not going to go where I'm going in my life yeah. <laughs> and if I hang out with you guys I'm not going to achieve my goals I'm not going to achieve sure my dream
2: was that articulated at the time Is that- at
3: the time absolutely a hundred percent I wanted to work in show business I wanted to to meet interesting people and I looked at that crowd and I thought I don't want to be one of you I don't... I'm not a fighter. I'm not a fighty person. This is beneath me. This is violent, and it's beneath me. And I don't want to. So I don't know if that sounds horribly snobby, that not I don't remote, want to be a thug. sound
2: remotely snobby. But I didn't so want to be a thug. Fairly straightforward, sensible course of action, isn't it? <laughs> but at that age, of course, everything is times a million, isn't it? It's like living under a microscope. In Absolutely. your own mind, you're analysing everything, and you absolutely and then
3: you know and then you get to 15 16 and you buy a pair of dot martins and you start writing cure lyrics on your canvas bag and everything seems okay
2: so when did you uh, fit in
3: when did I fit in, I think, um, when I started doing stand-up? Well, that's let's not... just,
2: just pause there, because you said already at fourteen, fifteen, you knew you wanted to go into showbiz. You got your father's example, but that's not mm. showbiz showbiz, no. is it? That's the kind of, like I say, that Clive Jamesy cusp of entertainer and writer yeah. and satirist and um, uh, a poet. So you, you knew it was a career option to... To just be funny on a stage? No, no, I didn't.
3: It was like I was saying, I want to I want to go to the moon. Yeah. It was this bizarre thing. I was 15 years old and I remember this Nigerian lady asked me directions near my parents' house. And my parents live on an industrial estate, so it's quite tricky if you don't know it to right. find a road, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, um, I can walk you there because I was a real sap that always, I always used to go to school really early to avoid the bullies on the way. Mm. So I got a bit of time. So I walked with her and she was like, oh, this is very kind. I can't do Nigerian accent. This is very kind of you. I was like, thank you. I'm very kind. <laughs> um, and, and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know what? I've never, ever told anyone this before, but I want to be a stand-up comedian. And it felt so massive, those words coming out of my mouth. And I remember it. We were crossing a bridge um, over the North Circular Road near the Hanger Lane gyratory yeah. system
2: I know, well, it's the yeah. one with the really long footpath. Yeah, it? yeah, that yeah, was, yeah,
3: so yeah. That was a lot of time for me to tell her part. my ambitions. <laughs> and she was brilliant. She goes, oh, maybe one day I'll see you on the television. I was like, oh, maybe you will.
2: <laughs> it's just cue the music.
3: <laughs> La <La-la. laughs>
2: Narrator. And she did.
0: And
3: in me, 10 years later, <laughs> there I was.
2: But genuinely, I mean, you, 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 did, you didn't have a plan at this point, so you, you're sixth form, you're a bit happier at school. You found a kind of
3: yes, because vibe. by 6 form all the bullies left.
2: Right, you are because yes. they weren't doing A levels. You were. You went off to college in Winchester, I think.
3: Um, yes, I went to Winchester and I left school. I did I did sixth uh, form for a term, but we didn't do drama, and so I applied to Richmond College, and they said uh, we've got no room on our drama course. So I went there for a term, and I did politics instead. And then I met—I met, I met very, a very I know. I met a boy in a train who said, "Oh, I was in the drama course, but my family's moving. We're leaving." So I marched into the office and I said, "I know this is the boldest I've ever been. I know you have a space on your course," and they said, "Well, it was very tricky. I want to be bonded now." I was like, what? And I, "Do you know what I said?" Go on. Oh God, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to admit this because I knew all the drama a lot. And I said, "Oh, okay. I just thought you might consider me because I know that there's a space." And, and you don't have any other ethnic minorities on the course. And they didn't. Oh, I see. It came they up. didn't. Yeah. And I knew there was a space. And I said, is that why you're not letting me yeah. on? <laughs> I'm not joking. I said that. And I said it so politely. And they gave me a space.
2: Yes. But well, why not? I but mean, it was true, it, though. had it, it, it had not exactly been a, a positive to... in your life in other areas. So what, well, why I, not, I uh...
3: reckon they just thought, well, you're no Juliet.
2: <laughs> it's tragedy, yes, of <laughs> course. You know,
3: you're no Hermione. What are we going to do with you? What
2: What sort of things did you play then, once you started?
3: What, like plays and stuff? Yeah, well, what
2: sort of parts did you get?
3: I didn't get any. You didn't? Never, but no. But you,
2: you do the exercises and you do the classes and you do the standing up on the stage. And you yeah. look at me, Jean was growing slowly oh, by the day. listen, a...
3: James, that first day when i was in a room with black curtains all around it and a black floor finding a space mm. and making shapes and pretending to be trees i felt like i'd come home did
2: you really mm. because you had that inner life and you didn't really have anywhere to put it before
3: no and we had no drama at my school right no i wish i think my life would have been very different my my kids have just started a after school drama club I thought, oh, my life would have been so different to have had that. That would have been amazing. That would been... I wouldn't have cared what people at school said. But my parents wouldn't have known how to find, a... you know, no, just, they just—they had a lot on their yeah, mind. But, but yeah,
2: and also it's a, it's, a, it's a jungle, isn't it? Yeah. Ne- negotiating opportunities for children.
3: Absolutely, Same yeah. for
2: me, oddly. It's a, the odd parallels, given that our backgrounds are so different. But if I hadn't gone to... Krishna Murthy was sitting there not long ago and it turned out we'd both been in Manchester Youth Theatre and we were both quite... Cocky kids, I guess, and, and clever kids. But for me, at an all boys Catholic boarding school, if I hadn't gone in 1988 to Manchester Youth Theatre, because mm. um, it, it, I was going to mock you a bit for saying my life would have been different if I'd been to these drama classes. I can tell you my life is different because I got into the, yeah. the Youth Theatre in 1988, and suddenly you don't feel alone anymore. You just don't, or even different. You just feel, Christ, there's loads of people like me. Yeah. And some of them have got broad, Chalton hardy accents, and some yeah. of them are as posher than I am. Uh, well, Maybe one of them was posher than I am, and and someone. No them, one's
3: posher than you are.
2: Someone lived in Notting Hill, <laughs> and someone lived in Stockport, and yet we all loved doing this weird thing. And
3: you know what? When you do something like drama, and there's a um, sort of egalitarian yeah, that's it um, vibe that's it. to it. Yes, and it helps enormously having your peers see you from a different angle, you know, and yeah. see you with fresh eyes. Yeah. So. Um, and you see yourself. And you see yourself with fresh eyes, and you get so much confidence. The one or two times at school, I had, we had to read stuff out loud, and I was good at it. And other kids would go, "You're really good at acting, yeah." I was like, "Thank you." Thank
2: you.
3: <laughs> Never done acting though. Still to this day, it's it early days. It still stomachy. exactly. Um, Many twenty-five.
2: First, we should hop a bit because you—you, I mean, I get an idea of what college was and what college meant. Yeah, a bit of drama, um, mm. broadening horizons. No,
3: do you know what my my university course—drama, theatre, and television—it was none of it was um, performance-based. It was all drama, theatre, and television for development. It was run by experimental a course I know it was it doesn't exist anymore <laughs> you surprised um, me <laughs> no it was just someone complained yeah. someone on the course complained and said it was left-wing um indoctrination really yeah i
2: get that a lot with my radio show
3: (laughs) maybe that's why i love it oh my gosh (laughs) i've been brainwashed i'm really a tory so
2: you weren't being slowly turned into a no it was
3: all about community theater um drama for that that kind of joan littlewood
2: type i remember one of
3: the first things we did was look at kathy come home yeah and that blew my mind. So it wasn't a jazz hand drama course at all. I thought it was on the first day when they told us about, um, kept talking about hegemony mm. and Kathy come Ho and, and African drama. I put my hand up and I said, are we doing an end of term show? And they went, did you read the prospectus? <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just saw drama.
3: But Winchester and was pretty.
2: <laughs> yeah. Love it. But presumably now during these three years, the... The stand-up act starts developing, or or no later? Um,
3: no, no, later. I, I was still absolutely um, just so shy, and
2: and yet not shy because you can yet, talk to Penny on the on the bridge at Hangar oh, yeah, Lane. yeah, I yet- can do
3: that. But in the, like at, at college, like when we're all together and everyone's being boisterous, I could never. And I f- what, I, what I found quite difficult, I think having an older brother, I, God, I love my brother. He's my best friend. But growing up, I was like the idiot little sister. If I told her, oh, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut yeah. up, shut And I always felt like um, boys would always just have someone to shut up, I think, I think. Yeah. That's not anyone's fault. No. You know, we are who we are. And so I, I always felt quite um, shy about speaking up in a crowd and, and all of that. So I just get drunk an awful lot far 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 too much um but i sort of shuffled out of university and i still just wanted to do comedy right there was nothing else and everyone else was sending off cvs and getting jobs here there whatever i wasn't interested so i um got a job at pret-a-manger and i worked in a call center worked at pret-a-manger i did life modeling and i did cleaning so Those are what what I did. I had no interest. So real
2: bread and butter stuff then. Yeah,
3: I had no interest in getting a job in a place where I could move forward Mm. or or having a career as a TV producer and all the other things that we wanted to do. The best thing that happened to me then was I got a place on this community theatre project in Finsbury Park called the Levener's Arts Theatre, Levener's Leveners Arts Theatre, And it was a project working with um, raising awareness about homelessness amongst people who've left care or prison. Oh, wow. And I was told it was really hard to get a place there. There's only 10 places. Mm. And that morning I had a horrific fight with my dad. He was so mean to me. And I was just full of rage and anger that I've always, you know, one of the, oh, right, we're doing this, aren't we, Dad, today? We're doing this, aren't we? Because um, other times my dad is an angel. So you should sure. never always um, have to see who you get. I went so angry. And I had a, I had a pint before the interview. How crazy is that? <laughs> and I sat down. It was one of those situations where I was not going to not get it.
2: Yeah, I get you.
3: I was not going to not get that place. Taking no prisoners. Absolutely. And I got it. And all of the theory that I'd learned at university, we were putting in practice. Oh, wow. Those people, I was the only one on the on the... Uh, on, on the project that I hadn't had personal experience of street homelessness. Um, so I was working with these people, like, one of them stole my bag. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was incredible, and it absolutely changed my life. It absolutely changed my life, and it gave me so much confidence. And after... Um,
2: Why? Why did it give you so much
3: Because I was with people who got me. You know, I yeah. was with people, the whole... Even um, though
2: they were people from an utterly alien...
3: Absolutely. ...world... But, the nature of community theatre is acceptance yeah. and feeling like you matter. So this is why I feel people laugh at me for saying this, but I think that um, we should really fund it for people who are um, in dire straits, yeah. you know, those sort of like Serious. troublemaker yeah. people, because it matters if you don't, don't turn up for a rehearsal. Mm. You're missed. Yeah. Your part is important. You're part of a group.
2: You, ma- you matter.
3: You matter. And and I'm I felt like I mattered. That and
2: you were pulling people with you as well. You weren't just yeah. finding a role for yourself, or you were, but that role involved helping
3: absolutely other
2: people. So how do we move from there to when did you first comedy? Yeah, when oh. did you?
3: Well, the facilitators of that course, yeah. they um. I sort of, we all had a little like appraisal of where they thought we could go. And I decided that I was going to, I wanted to work in the Simon community, which is a residential Mm. community for alcoholics. Really bad idea because I was so um, massively um, um, busted up with addiction and alcohol as well
2: at that
0: time. I didn't know that. I thought, I'm
3: just being young. And they had a prospectus for the city, um, Lit College in Hoban. They said, they do a stand up comedy course. Chappie, you're really funny. Everyone says you're really fu- I was funny. Yeah, sure. I was funny. I
2: believe
3: you. I used to be so soci- socially way more funnier when I wasn't a comic. You now that to, I'm a don't comic, you up your best stuff. God, I'm it? so serious. <laughs> now that I'm a professional comedian, I'm so serious. I please, I have to live with myself. So I went and did this course, um, which didn't teach me much other than uh, it introduced me to other comedy obsessives, and yeah. then I lived on the London comedy circuit like a rat.
2: Uh, as a performer?
3: No, as a punter. You mean
2: as a punter? Yeah, so that's what I thought you meant. And, so um, you were at osmosis. You're just yeah. absorbing and absorbing and absorbing. Absolutely.
3: And then uh, during the course, I got together a five minute set that I then took around the club. Tell me I, about
2: the first time.
3: First time, um, I got laughs yeah. and I got five pounds. Wow. He gave me five pounds because it was my first one. And I um, there was a guy there called, um, oh my God, why have I forgotten his name? He right. wrote The Office with Ricky DeVay. Stephen Merchant. Stephen Merchant. All six this foot seven. B- all big, big tall man. He got all oh, hello. and he was like, you know, pushing up his glasses and he was kind of, you know, taking his first floundering steps as well. And it was amazing. And that was that. Okay. I didn't Boom. go traveling. I didn't go on holiday. Why would you? All the yeah. good stuff's at sure. home. That's what I did. But I did the same set for far too long. I was just... I was... <laughs>
2: You've done it again. You're so self-critical. Oh, of course I am. But it's I'm so a...
3: long ago now. You just... I know. But I, when I just think about my 20s, yeah. when I had no children, and oh, I had all yeah. the time in the oh, world... Oh, no,
2: I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. To all work you could be cri- No,
3: but what I did was drink right. and be be crazy mm. and um, be really stagnated in my thought processes with comedy because I was so terrified of it all. So
2: when it worked, you stuck with it. I and with it. stuck with it. And then you start with it, and then you start with it some more.
3: Yeah, okay. and I sort of hung myself.
2: So what oh, broke that heart cycle heart.
3: then? A recovery.
2: Oh really? Yeah. So So really, you do see it that clearly. You, oh, it, it God, was yeah. all linked. So you, you you were just on a treadmill. Yeah. Or on a you know an exercise bike.
3: Yeah. This um it's funny. Like I sometimes like reviewers have written stuff like, oh, a shapewear was treading water for many years I, before. Okay. And it's it was noticed yeah. and people said to me like because I was thirty one and I went so I started stand up at twenty three. Yeah. And I got into a 12-step program at 31 and I had a year of abstinence. So this is 2006 hmm. and I had a year of abstinence and that was the year that I wrote Asylum Speaker, which was my breakthrough yes. show. And um, and that's why. That's why I understood where days begin and end. I understood. And is that
2: is that because your brain is cushioned when you're drinking? It's because you kind of have your reality is slightly dulled so you don't. Mm. Let yourself because this brain you've clearly got this is yeah. turbocharged brain. You would be putting it constantly in third and never letting it go into fifth. It,
3: I have to say it wasn't. It wasn't drink. Drink was not my primary. God, all oh, this okay. therapy speak. It's not sure. my primary addiction. It's other stuff. But w- w- the way I describe it is you've seen American Werewolf in London yeah, or any for a while. Any, any any werewolf film yeah. where yeah. Um, yeah, where the where the guy's kind of okay, and then his hands he sees his hands get big. And then hairs sprout out, and he's terrified, and he knows it's happening. But it, then, then it goes to crosses the Rubicon, and that's it. His he becomes yeah. a wolf, and yeah. he creates carnage and mayhem. And then he wakes up, full of shame, full of rage. He's caused devastation and mayhem. And he's really terrified it will happen again. And, of course, it does again and again and again and again and again. And when you're in that cycle, for me, some people are really highly functioning addicts. For me, it just meant that my career was not creatively. I wasn't moving anything forward. It was just at the clubs, at the clubs, at the clubs.
2: And it all fell into place. It takes some effort. No one's pretending recovery is easy. Mm. 12 steps can be an absolute... I mean, many people never make it to 12. They never sort of get But But it all... Seems to feed off each other. The, yeah. the, if the success propels the recovery. I made it
1: to twelve. Did you not? Know? No. I don't really you know, know what yeah. I'm talking about, Shaffi, To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> But
2: that's okay. <laughs> Twelve is enlightenment like Buddha, isn't
1: it? <laughs> yeah, I'm
3: not Buddha yet.
2: <laughs> but you take my point. It was I do, working. Of course, yeah. You got over the obstacles you needed to get over. Yeah. And that is rendered much easier. The struggle is rendered much easier by the visible signs of succeeding, which Absolutely. are happening in work.
3: That was that was it, I, I had a gig in the um in a club called Jonglers in Edinburgh, and I met my husband, who's also a comedian, and I fell in love And he was the first person that I told – I remember him saying to me that night that he gave up smoking. And after he gave up smoking, he did stand-up because he felt that smoking was the the – giving up was the impossible thing. And if he could give up that, he could do stand-up. And I thought, yeah, I've got an impossible thing too. And then when we sort of, you know, fell in love, I thought, I want to enjoy life with you. Mm. I had no, sounds really pathetic, but I didn't really see a reason to have a life before. But then I met him and I fell in love. I was like, life's great, isn't it? Life's amazing. I've got some happiness. And so I went into recovery. And everything career-wise went up. And then I got divorced and then it went crashing down again. <laughs>
2: did, did it? Did Because it? Yeah. the divorce was ugly. It's nice. I didn't, you, I
3: didn't um, deal with it okay. in, in, in a Zen-like way. So to way. step
2: onto the stage and be hilarious when you're dying inside is presumably not the easiest thing I, in the world I, to do. I,
3: I took everything I got for granted. I cried and wailed. I had a manager who very sweetly and honestly said to me, Babe, you're becoming the divorce bore. You're clearing rooms. <laughs> I was heartbroken. I felt... I felt like my dad said it's the first time in your life that you felt defeated. I felt de- oh, defeated.
1: wow.
3: There was no way of my fixing this. And we had a baby. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't plan on being a single mom. Yeah. And then the worst thing, the worst thing, I had this boy, my child, and now I was being told that three nights a week my baby wouldn't be with me. And I could not accept that. I did not. I, I kicked and I screamed. And there was no acceptance for a very long time. But now it's all fine. <laughs>
2: You're not angry with me, you're angry with something else, but I'm the only one here.
3: Oh, my son said that to me. Oh,
2: At about this point in your life.
3: Yes, he said that to me when he was three. <sniffs> Killed me. I bet. I still cuddle him now. He's 10 now. And every now and then I'll just attack him from behind and, in a bear hug and kiss him you and go, God, I'm so sorry. Another
2: two years, I reckon, of that, if you're lucky. Oh, Never. God, don't. <laughs> get off me, Mum.
3: Oh, I already get that. I do you? Oh, She's no, about Mum. to go
2: up a level. He said to
3: his... me this morning, Mum, you can kiss my elbow. It's like thanks. <laughs> He's cool. I love He's him. He's very cool. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> We're going to run out of time and we need to bring ourselves bang up to date. So we'll move briefly over the books that you've written, A Beginner's Guide to Acting English, which is a memoir, yes. effectively. You've said you didn't like the title. No, I didn't like the title, no. And then the novel. Um... I like the
3: book. I have to stress I love the book, but not yes.
2: the title. Yes, and then what should you have called it?
3: English People's Smell of Milk.
2: That's lovely, actually. And then the novel, which did extremely well, Nina Is Not Okay, again, very autobiographical. Mm-hmm. But, but I'll tell briefly, because I want to talk about the the new show, Mistress of Misfit, mm-hmm. or the touring show. Why did you pull out of a of an award that was specifically for... Writers of a of a black and minority ethnic background?
3: The reason I pulled out of that award was because um I didn't know who decides where white ends uh, and bame begins. Yeah. Who decides that? And who decides for my children who are half English and one of them, you know, you'd never question their Englishness and the other one looks more like me. Yes. So one of them would be eligible for this and not the other. Who decides all that? And I, you know, I joke that the judges were three literary experts and a man from Dulux. And also what <laughs> what I felt was for <laughs> those reasons. Um, it, would
2: you go on an all-women shortlist? Uh, so It's a little easier to distinguish, although that... that, that world is moving a little as well. Well, that's it? half
3: the population. But this, this is um, – you know what? There was some logic to a woman. Like my, my character is yeah, yeah, a woman. Yeah. Um, I'm a woman. I have been told I am BAME. And they keep changing the terminology for non-white people. Yes. You know, just in case we start to feel at home. I don't know why it happens. you <laughs>
2: get used to it.
3: Yeah, writer of colour.
2: Yeah.
3: I, I said on the Today programme, writer of colour makes me sound like a crayon. And, <laughs> I, and I didn't mean to sound ungrateful when I withdrew. I but then, like, it. for example, I can get it if it's like, OK, English is a second language or immigrants, but, like, Polish writers are not included in this.
2: No. And yet- you
3: know, we don't include the experience of, of white you know, immigrants, and they are under my umbrella. My Bulgarian neighbour read yes. my book, my first book, and she stopped me in the street today, and she said, "You know, I related so much because um, Bulgaria's right on the edge of the Middle East, and all of this." And I was like, "You know, you're white, mate. No one's interested in your stories."
2: <laughs> <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense, actually. Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it?
3: So yeah, just well, with the next
2: book, get, get nominated for a Booker, and you won't have any problems at all. <laughs> I'll be yeah. fine
3: with that. <laughs> no,
2: no nuances. Um, so, Mistress and Misfit. Yes. You seeing your life through the lens of Emma Hamilton, Emma Nelson's Hamilton. mistress.
3: Well, where did yes. that come from? We did a play about Nelson at of school. You did. Yes. We did a play at primary school about Horatio Nelson. The vicar's son
2: from Norfolk.
3: Absolutely, and Tanya Forward played.
2: She's um, still bitter, Emma Hamilton. Still, oh, no. I know, so it's great. Do you
3: know what? I was never, I was never Mary in the school play. I was so bitter about that. And I joke about that. I was the only Middle Eastern virgin in the class, <laughs> and. <laughs> And do you know what? When my daughter was cast as Mary last year in the nativity play, you have never seen an atheist. Lap of honour. So proud. I was in the audience just cheering. Did you
2: give her notes afterwards?
3: No, I was no. just, honestly, I just thought everything is vindicated now. This is all I've ever wanted. My my flesh and blood is, is the lead part yeah. in a school play. I was always the narrator, because you've got a loud, clear voice.
2: Right, but narrator is often the biggest part, but it was never quite the same as... Acting.
3: Acting. Mm. I know, I know. So we did a play about Nelson and I was mesmerised by that period of history. I still have a keen interest in naval history, the press gangs. I mean, what what isn't yeah. there to love about that? And then I got older and I think if you went to, the, if you had the sort, I don't want to say school like mine because that school still exists of and course. people do the best they can, I yeah. know, but... In the 80s, uh, the schools that I went to, you sort of had to educate yourself as an adult.
2: Yeah, I understand. So
3: I did go back to a lot of the stuff that we did at school that I didn't get at the time. The, um, the Corn Laws, the Suffragettes, Nelson. I went back over all of these things as an adult. And one thing I, I was fascinated by with Nelson and Emma was the fact that he was genuinely madly and passionately in love with her. She wasn't just like Mm. a hot bit on the side. And before he went into the Battle of Trafalgar, when he could see the Spanish fleets on the horizon, he sat down and he wrote a codicil to his will. And he asked his king and country, in the event of his death, to look after Emma Hamilton and Horatia, their their daughter. And they didn't. Mm. They didn't. And they um, allowed her to spiral into alcoholism. And, debt, and she had to flee to calais and she died as a refugee in calais and i just thought wow at school they just said kiss me hardy thank yeah. god i did my duty and they have erased the impact that this woman this incredible woman had on his life and uh, you know that column is so high because no one can look him in the eye because of what they did to him
2: <laughs> you're on the road with it now yes so i am people can find uh tickets at shappy.co.uk
3: uh, yes, they can indeed. What
2: ambitions are left for you?
3: Um, I've another novel. Yes. And I would very dearly like to see Nina's Not Okay in some uh, live form. In some, th-
2: Is that looming closer? Is I that- hope so. Okay. It's
3: been optioned by someone. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But I would very much like to write for screen.
2: Gosh, that was astonishing. Um, I think we both got quite emotional at times in that. And I, I have to tell you, because uh, uh, people with the look at me, Gene, always bring it back to themselves in the end. But as a journalist who does like to think of himself as someone who, who speaks truth to power, the worst punishment I ever get is a, is a mauling in the sun or a bit in the Daily Mail gossip column. That stuff about her dad facing an assassination plot was was quite quite incredible I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did I hope that you enjoyed it enough too if you haven't already subscribed to Unfiltered feel free to leave a rating and a review on iTunes and, and feel free to review a specific episode as well it's helpful for me actually to see how you feel about uh, one interview compared to another or um, one interview in particular we're up for a couple of awards if, if you want to um, get involved in voting the People's Choice Award and you can I think actually vote now at BritishPodcastAwards.com Uh, slash vote so go and do that and of course if you can't be bothered to do any of that you could just help us out in the most old-fashioned of ways and simply spread the word about how good unfiltered is
0: you're listening to unfiltered with james o'brien brought to you by joe